0: Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 25. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called
1: Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations.
0: Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way.
1: But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus.
2: Uh, I recently revisited some marriage material that Becca and I enjoyed in our first year of marriage. You know, you do the premarital counseling, and then you do, hey, you just got married, so here's some more counseling. Uh, But I remember going through this material with a group of people from our church back in Minnesota. Uh, It was beneficial for me to be reminded of those lessons and remember, glorious, glorious, how much the Lord has matured us since 2006, particularly me. Uh, I had a lot of growing up to do, and if you think that this guy that you see, that you know, uh, had a lot of growing up to do, oh my goodness, there was a lot to do in 2006. But the Lord, in his kindness, used lessons from Scripture and that church to help us grow, and in his kindness, he's helped us. But it was good to revisit those lessons and to think about those important teachings that helped my marriage back then but I found that revisiting those marriage principles that there was a lot of wise counsel for my other relationships. It wasn't just my wife that I need wisdom and knowing how to relate to, it's others as well and not only other people but I found that some of these principles from this material was helpful in how we relate to the scriptures themselves. This particular marriage counselor is fond of repeating the phrase, it's not wrong, just different. As he seeks to help couples work through the conflict that comes when two different people inhabit a shared space. It's good if you've got to share a checking account, if you've got to share an address, if you've got to share a couch, a share a refrigerator, to understand and be able to repeat. It's not wrong, it's just different. He's also prone to repeat the necessity of assuming that your spouse means well, even when they do something bothersome. Uh, some of you uh, can think back to the first year of your marriage, and I think all of us would say, yeah, that was a lesson to learn. Uh, I initially thought everything that was different from the way I wanted to do it was wrong, and I immediately thought that the wrong things that they were doing were particularly targeted at me, okay? But this is good marriage counsel. Um, Anyone who lives or works in close quarters with another person knows that the other people will always quite often do things differently, and it's very easy, even if it's not your spouse, it's very easy to assume that their differences are a a malicious attempt to wreck your day. That person didn't just make a decision that I wouldn't make, they purposefully made a plan to make that decision and wreck my day by doing it that way. It's terribly important to give your spouse, your roommate, your coworker, your friend, your in-laws the benefit of imagining the best of their hidden intentions. We don't know other people's intentions. We're often surprised by other people's intentions, but it's terribly important that we think and assume that their intentions are probably good. They wouldn't have married us if they didn't at least want some good for us. Sometimes we can assume the wrong thing, but it's good to start there. Now, I'm not teaching on marriage this morning, but I think these principles will be helpful as we look at this first chapter of Matthew. Matthew verses 1 through 7 1 through 17 excuse me record the genealogical links between the birth of Jesus and the distant past bible genealogies the genealogies of the bible can be difficult you open up your bible reading plan and it says numbers chapter 1 oh boy matthew chapter 1 oh boy and on and on these genealogies can be difficult, and not only are the names hard to pronounce, but the whole process of naming who begat whom feels very awkward. Now, if we take the wise counsel that it's not wrong, just different, we can suspend our quick judgment that, it's not, that this is not a good way to begin a book. Our natural inclination is to see this as, this is awkward, this is wrong. But if we take that counsel and say, hey, maybe it's just different... We can suspend our judgment, and if we take the good advice and assume that the biblical author has good and wise intentions for starting things this way, we can even humble ourselves and listen with an expectation of receiving a blessing from something that doesn't initially seem that way. So my primary thing here is not to help your marriage. I hope your marriage can be helped by these things, or your other relationships. I hope you can gain that. But the primary thing that I'm trying to press in here in this introduction is that though genealogy seems strange, and our natural inclination is to say, ew, that is a terrible way to start a book, if we humble ourselves, we can say, hmm, maybe Matthew is wise. Maybe Matthew loves me and loves the God who made us. And maybe I should receive this as something different, yet something good. The main idea that I want to press in on us that I think is really um, predominant throughout this first chapter is this. God keeps his promise and comes to save. Hopefully that's simple. Hopefully that's memorable, but what I want to keep pressing in, all the little details and explanations of things that I give, is I just want you to walk away, walk out of this room, that God keeps his promise, and God comes to save. I want to keep things really simple this morning. I know many of us are sick, many of us are um, just got a lot of things on our minds, so I want to be particularly simple this morning and have two, just two very basic points. First, God keeps his promise. Verses 1 through 17. And then secondly, God comes to save. Verses 18 through 25. So, first half of the main idea, second half of the main idea. Two points. God keeps his promise. God comes to save. Let's look at the first point. God keeps his promise. As I said earlier, these first 17 verses are the genealogical record of the family that Jesus was born into. This may feel like a clumsy way to begin telling the story of Jesus, but if we remember that we are guests looking into a historical document written in a foreign and ancient manner, then we can respectfully adjust to a different way of doing things. You go to the in-laws, you gotta respectfully accept that things are done differently here. You go to your friend's house, you respectfully adjust to the way they do things, and we need to do the same thing as we come here to Matthew 1. You and I live in a culture that uses a method of identification that involves first, middle, and last names. We use birth dates and years. We use social security numbers, driver's license numbers, and group identification numbers. There's a lot of accuracy with these numbers, but with all of this accuracy and with all of these numbers, there comes a significant disconnect from the personal identification with family and ancestry. Everything to get at me or to get at you is tied to a number, and those numbers are very um, efficient and solitary, but those numbers... Who has, who has the uh, social security number right after you or right before you? If you're twins, maybe that's the way it works out. I don't know. But I, I don't know who has the identif- group ID number right after me. There's no connection to anything else. There's just this solitary numbering system. This is normal for us. And so we look at Matthew 1 and think, why don't they just give Jesus his social security number? The world in which Matthew was written was not governed by the years B.C. or A.D. Numbers didn't rule the day as they do in ours, but they also had no need for the various ancestry services of our day. We have Social Security numbers, but we also have to send in our DNA to figure out who was our great-great-great-great-granddaddy. That's not a problem for the people in Matthew's day. First-century Jews may not have been able to tell you the month, day, and year of their wedding, but they were well-versed in who their great-great-grandfather was and how they were legal or biological descendants of the men and women in the history books of the Bible. I think this is particularly important to see that even though these genealogies are hard, every first-century Jew could tie themselves to the people in the Bible. They could walk things back and to say, I'm connected in this particular way to God's redemptive plan in Scripture. It's very, very, very different for me to tell you that my name is Andrew Thomas McFarland and that I was born on June 30th, 1981. These details, however, do not help me know who my ancestors were or how I connect to the great stream of humanity that precedes me. It's very uh, accurate. But it doesn't give much historical context to who this guy is. The genealogies of the Bible are not primarily intended to be efficient. Okay, understand when you read the genealogies of the scripture, you have it in your mind like we got to move, we got things to do, and we need to be efficient. The genealogies of the Bible are not aiming at efficiency primarily. There is works of efficiency in them, but the primary goal is not efficiency. Their primary purpose was to weave a particular person into the grand story of what God has been doing throughout the many previous generations as recorded in Scripture. How does all of these people that I'm learning about in Scripture, how do they fit into what God has been doing since the beginning? Genealogies do that. I can't tell you the day, the month that Jesus was born precisely accurately i can't tell you his social security number but we can tell you how jesus how shealtiel how these other people were woven into the historical work of god of redemption the genealogy of matthew one may not strike you as thrilling i'd venture a guess that not one of you thought this is thrilling this passage but it is clearly demonstrating that Jesus was born into the only human history that exists. The names that are recorded in other Old Testament genealogies are the same names used in this story. Matthew, was not, Matthew did not set out to write a fable or a myth. His writing is not a fictional novel intended to entertain a paying audience. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as woven into God's redeeming work in the Old Testament and not an invention unhitched from it. So, why do we got to read all these names? It's difficult, it's hard, but understand the accomplishment of reading these names and these genealogies puts Jesus right in the midst of history. It weaves Jesus right into everything that God was doing in the Old Testament. It puts Jesus right in the mix of actual human histories. Does it feel like you're reading some sort of legal document? Excellent. That's the way it's supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel a sense that Jesus, these are the legal documents that belong to Jesus. Though this way of showing the historical setting in which a person is born doesn't aim at efficiency, Matthew does skip a number of generations along the way. If you were to hold this genealogy with other genealogies, you would see that they aren't exactly one for one, but what is going on here is that he's showing that Jesus is woven into these things. Matthew skips a number of generations along the way, and he isn't aiming to tell us every one of Jesus' ancestors, but... He is showing how Jesus is a legal descendant of certain ancestors that are particularly important. So, does Matthew say all of the generations and all of the ancestors throughout the history of Jesus? No. But it's clear that Jesus is woven into this history and connected to particular individuals in God's redemptive history. Verse 1 highlights these important figures. Now remember... There's a couple of important figures that you've got to know that Matthew wants us to see Jesus legally connected to. And these particular figures are highlighted in verse 1. Verse 1 serves to show that Matthew is doing more than simply showing Jesus to be an actual figure in history. Jesus is a a, a figure in history, that should be clear. But something greater and more is being done. Matthew writes in verse 1, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We'll look more closely at this identity marker of Christ in the second point, but here in this first point, I want to pay particular attention to what Matthew is saying about Jesus being a son of David and a son of Abraham. Why does that matter? Verses 2 through 6 move from Abraham down through Isaac and Jacob, through Judah and David's father, Jesse. This section surprises us with the names of three Gentile women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Each of these women have their story told in Scripture, and we learn that God was pleased to knit his redeeming work together with sinful women, repenting women, and women who were willing to trust God in very desperate situations. This is one of those Places where you get rewarded if you read your Old Testament. You can say, Yeah, I know a whole lot more about Rahab than just her name. This section isn't ultimately about the individuals recorded, but about a specific promise made to Abraham. Okay? So all of these names might lead us, what is, what is this name? Who is this person? The point isn't to get so focused on any one of these individuals other than Abraham. The primary Focus should be on Abraham. Why should we be focusing on Abraham? Well, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we read this. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise to make a great nation of Abraham that blesses all the families of the earth was deeply doubted as Abraham and his wife were physically incapable of reproducing. Abraham doubted God. But in Genesis 15, God reassures him and says, Your very own son shall be your heir. A son shall be your heir. A promise of God's global blessing has been directly attached to a descendant or a son of Abraham. You should look at the words from Genesis 12 and to say, Hey, God God can't just make promises and flake out on them. And I see some things here that aren't completed. Where is this global promise of his blessing? I don't see that fulfilled. So this promise of God's global blessing has been directly attached to a particular man, a particular son, a son who would descend from Abraham, a man whose ancestry directly connects to Abraham. And this man would receive God's promise of transcontinental generosity. Isaac is named in our genealogy, and we're reminded that God kept his promise to give Abraham an heir, but neither Isaac nor any of these sons have received God's promise of global blessing. Hey, God, God gave an heir. God gave a son to Abraham. But I don't think that was the global blessing that God had in mind. God has kept... Part of the great Abrahamic promise, but some of it is yet to be accomplished. And there's a continued expectation that God will fulfill this promise through a son of Abraham. So even in this genealogy, as we read about sons of Abraham, we're looking at them and saying, that wasn't the son who received that great promise. Verse 6 connects our genealogy to King David and it moves forward in time to the fall of Israel and Judah as nations. The Hebrew people were conquered by Babylon and deported to its kingdom. It's important to highlight King David because God built upon his promise to Abraham with another promise to King David. Okay? So hopefully you're with, are you with me here? God made a promise to Abraham. Said, so "I'm going to give you a son and to that son I will give this global promise." There's the son. Uh, global promise not being fulfilled. I was waiting for this huge, huge blessing and I'm not seeing it. That promise isn't fulfilled and yet God still works with his people and then he makes another promise to David. So there's an incomplete promise, an unfulfilled promise, and God says, let's put more promises on top of that one. Okay? And so this is the importance of seeing that Jesus is a son of Abraham and a son of David. It's important to highlight King David because God built upon that promise to Abraham with another promise to King David. Using similar language to the promise to Abraham, God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones Of the earth. This language, this phrase, I will make you a great name, is very similar to the promise that God says to Abraham. And so we see hey, these two are like two Legos built on top of each other. They work together, they're similar, they're part of a whole. God fleshes out this promise of a great name with these great words of expectation. God says in in 2 Samuel 7 the Lord will make you a house. The promise of God's global blessing through a son of Abraham has now combined with a promise of a never-ending kingship through a son of David. We were getting tired. We were waiting for this promised one, this promised son of Abraham. And now instead of fulfilling that promise all by itself, God says, let's escalate things. Let's make it even greater. Let's not only talk about a global blessing, let's talk about an eternal kingdom. The promise of global blessing through a son of Abraham is now combined with a promise of a never-ending kingship. These glorious promises go unfulfilled and seem to work in reverse as the Israelites suffer total defeat and exile. You put this expectation for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham and this expectation for God to fulfill this promise to David. You put them together and then you read about the divided kingdom. Like this is not the fulfillment of that promise. This is like God made a promise and then all the air goes out of the tires. This is not going anywhere. It seems to be getting worse. Though all seems lost in the history of Israel, the line of Abraham that connects to the line of David isn't lost in that Babylonian exile. The Israelites are serving in the kingdoms and in the, the courts of other foreign kings and God is protecting the seed of Abraham and he's protecting the offspring of David. The ancestry continues as we follow in verses, verses 12 and what follows there. We learn that God gave sons to Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. These men were sons of Abraham and sons of David as were Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliud, Eliezer, Matan, and Jacob. Each of these men could have been the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and David, but they died. They died without delivering God's global blessing and his unending kingdom. I want you to see all these names are the names of men who are sons of Abraham. They're sons of David, but they are not the son. Who's going to bring about the fulfillment of these great promises that God hasn't yet fulfilled? The promised son didn't come through Methan or Jacob, but Jacob had a son named Joseph. Joseph was a legal and rightful heir to the promises made to Abraham and to David. His paperwork was legit. He is a son of Abraham and a son of David. But as soon as we find out about Joseph, we learn that he's betrothed to a woman named Mary. And Mary would give birth to Jesus. And Jesus is the central figure of this story. Verse 17 pulls all of the important information back together and says, Hey, if you fell asleep through all that long list of names, here's the important stuff. Abraham, David, these are promise-receiving ancestors. This line has survived the great deportation to Babylon, and then this great line from Abraham through David is now connecting to Jesus, who will be called the Christ. Okay, deep breath, everybody. With all of these names, it's easy to get distracted. But as this family line works its way through the chronology of the Old Testament, we see a clear readiness for God to keep his promises to Abraham and David. Promises of global blessing and promises of an eternal kingdom of peace and prosperity. Decades and generations, major, major events and millennia pass and God still hasn't fulfilled his promises to Abraham and David. Doubters have given up hope while the faithful still cling to God, even though it seems He is not going to be keeping His promises. There's a lot of time that passes between Abraham and Joseph. A lot of time. And there's that deep sense is God going to keep His word on this? I've been waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. We might feel the weight of boredom as we read through this and the other biblical genealogies. But the point here is that though life endures without God fulfilling his promises, he has not forgotten, nor will he allow the the descendants he intends to bless to be destroyed. Hear me. You might be bored looking at all these names. You might be frustrated at why I decide to teach on this, right? Right? But the point should just be abundantly clear that though we are bored, though so much time has passed, God has not forgotten his promises. Anybody ever feel like God could hurry up a little bit? Anybody in the room feel like they need to be reminded that God keeps his promises? God will not allow the line of Abraham, the line of David, to be destroyed. God will protect his promises, and God will keep his promises. Generation after generation, God preserved the sinful and idolatrous sons of Abraham. Selfishness, incest, prostitution, desperately poor Gentile widows, adultery, murder, idolatry, and child sacrifice stain this heritage of the son of Abraham and the son of David. But hear me no wickedness could keep God from fulfilling his promises. This list of people in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, are not ideal individuals. To say it politely, there are some PG-13 stories connected to this lineage. But listen, the wickedness of man would not stop God from doing his will. God is going to keep his promises regardless of what man does. God and his promises cannot be stopped. In Jesus, a legal heir to the promises to Abraham and to David has come. If you're feeling bored and you've given up on the promises of God, I just want to shake you. Listen. Anticipation. Long-standing promises that we're waiting for, waiting for, waiting for. Oh, son of Abraham, son of David, this could be the one. As you and I consider this great reality that God kept his promise and that God keeps his promise, we would do well to rejoice. Some of you did precisely what I think God wants all of us to do in some way. When I say God keeps his promises, you said amen. You smiled. And I simply want to apply Genesis 1 to you, this long list of names, and say God keeps his promises. And I hope that you might find it in yourself, the ability to smile. The ability to rejoice. The ability to say, all of the junk I have planned for this afternoon is still there, but guess what? I know that God keeps his promises. And that changes all of it. God keeps his promises. I want you to rejoice, saints. Great and glorious promises coming into fulfillment through a son that generation after generation longed to see. We get the pleasure of knowing the name and the identity of this son and this is something many, many generations never got to enjoy. Look at those names. Those were long lives that were lived. Evidently, I'm not the son of Abraham that was promised global generosity. Evidently, I'm not the son of David who's going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. Evidently, Jesus is the one. Repetition, repetition, failure, strike, 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 home run. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And he is the one who fulfills the promises. Saints, generations have lived and died and never got to know the name of Jesus, but you know the name of Jesus. We ought to rejoice, but we also ought to be strengthened to wait with faith. If God kept his promise through many trials and many years, you and I also should have certainty that, we, that God will keep his promises that he has yet to fulfill. Rejoice! I know the name of Jesus. This is good. But guess what? Monday's going to roll around. That bill you weren't expecting is going to come. That not so good news from the doctor is going to come. Man. If God kept this promise through many trials in many years, we also should have certainty that he will keep his promises. Particularly the, promise he has, the promises he has yet to fulfill. No. Jesus has not returned in the same way he left. No, he has not judged all people according to the gospel. No, we do not yet see our bodies resurrected and clothed with glory. No, we do not yet dwell with him in paradise. No, we do not yet see all our trials work together for good. No, we do not yet see a kingdom where the meek rule and the proud are humbled. No, we do not yet see the perfection of human society or God dwelling in the perfect fellowship with his people. We don't see these things. But if God kept his promise to give the son of Abraham and the son of David, we can and should be stirred up to believe that he will keep these promises too. God sent Jesus, therefore I can live, knowing that God will keep his promise to me. God will work this out together for good. God will come again. God will dwell with us. My body, this terrible body that's such a burden to me, will be glorified. There will be no more tears. And we will dwell with God, and nearness will be my daily experience, brothers and sisters. Every time I set my Bible down and check it off, I did my reading for today. I think I I wanted to experience more nearness with the Lord, but listen, God's going to keep that promise. God's going to keep that promise, and. God's promise-keeping demonstrated here in Matthew 1 helps us wait with faith, knowing one day all this longing to be near him is going to be fulfilled. He's going to keep that promise too. There have been many sons of Abraham and many sons of David, but in Jesus we have the unique son. There is none like Jesus. He alone is called the Christ, and he alone is the anointed one who fulfills God's promises. In Matthew 1, verse 18, Matthew zooms in on Jesus and helps us see how Jesus fulfills the promises of God. 1 through 17 helps us see that Jesus, through Joseph, is a son of Abraham and a son of David. And in verse 18 and following, we see how Jesus fulfills those great promises. So let's look at our second point, God comes to save. As this section begins, the story highlights a mother. The genealogy already noted the mothers Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, and now we meet Mary. She hasn't yet married Joseph, but she is legally promised to him. They are not sharing a home or a bed yet, but she's pregnant. I want you to understand that they're not married. They don't live together. This is kind of like being engaged, but it's like being engaged on steroids. (laughs) Right? You have to go before a judge to annul this promise that's been made. You have to go and and legal documentation, legal agreements that have been made because these two were promised to one another. He didn't break up with Mary when he found out that she was pregnant. He figured out how he was going to divorce her. But this stage of their marriage didn't have them sharing a home. It didn't have them sharing a bed. They were not sexually intimate with one another And that's terribly important as you understand this section because as she is discovered to be pregnant, all signs point to sexual sin. But the text says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is the only time and the only way that a woman becomes pregnant without the cooperation of a man. This is a bonkers, unique, never before, never after. All signs, all sane people are looking at Mary and saying, sexual sin. But the scripture tells us that she was pregnant because of the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. This supernatural pregnancy is another way in which Matthew is showing how God is connecting the story of Jesus with the story of redemption, as we see throughout the Old Testament. Numerous women are recorded in the Old Testament as being unable to have children. Women like Sarah and Hannah. And now Mary joins this group of special women who have received a child by the miraculous power of God. She joins this historical pattern of women who have received from the Lord what they could not receive by their own strength. Mary is unique, though, because no man contributed to this pregnancy. Joseph rightly believes that Mary has been unfaithful to their betrothal and that she is carrying another man's child. He mercifully makes plans to legally end their agreement, but before he can make those plans, before he can carry them out, God sends an angel to interrupt him. Just enter into that story for a minute. The woman that you are making plans to spend your life with is suddenly pregnant. Schedule changes a little bit. Your plans, what you've been working for changes a little bit. But before Joseph could get to the courts or get to the the gates of the city to make his plans to fulfill his breaking his ending his relationship with Mary, an angel comes to him in his sleep and says, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. I've had some messed up dreams. None of them helpful like this. Joseph has the important role of connecting Jesus to the promises made to Abraham and David. And an angel directs Joseph in the very unnatural path that he should take. If Joseph divorces Mary, Jesus is no longer a son of Abraham, he's no longer a son of David. His connection to that lineage is lost. Joseph is important to this role, Joseph is important and chosen by God to fulfill his promises. As Pastor Brian has shown us in recent weeks from the first two chapters of Hebrews, God has done lots and lots of work in the Old Testament through angels. But now he is doing something greater through his own son. This angelic visit is something of a handoff between the old way and the new way as this heavenly messenger prepares the way for the Son of God. Joseph is not only instructed to take this child as his own, but he is commanded to name him Jesus why is he to name him Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, Becca and I had a conversation about this recently, and it was, it was enlightening, so hopefully this is helpful to you. Jesus is the Greek version of the old Hebrew name Joshua. Okay? In Hebrew, the little boy's name is Joshua. When he comes into a Greek society, Joshua becomes Jesus. And Joshua is a clear mental signal back to the great deliverer of Israel who led God's people into the promised land. Remember, all of these names were to remind people where they've come from and what God has done in their past. And so to name the little boy Jesus, or to name him Joshua, is to remind them of someone who has gone before. As son of Abraham, he is expected to bring God's global blessing As son of David, he is expected to bring God's royal rule. And now, as a sort of second Joshua, he is expected to lead his people into a land flowing with milk and honey. The angel adds that this yet-to-be-born Savior will not rescue from Canaanites, but from the guilt and condemnation that these people have brought upon themselves by sinning against God. You will name him Jesus or Joshua to remind the people that he's a deliverer The deliverance will not come from fighting against giants in the land, but from fighting against sin. Matthew then points us in verses 22 and 23 back to the book of Isaiah, particularly chapters 7 and 8, where the prophet says, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." Isaiah was giving a timeline in his day when he said those words. He was giving a timeline in which God would deliver Israel from human oppressors. But God was also revealing an even greater salvation that would be fulfilled in this promise. Isaiah is making a promise to say that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This was a particular promise for the people who had been deported but it was also reference to a much greater promise, a much greater salvation that God would provide through the, the son of a virgin who would be God dwelling with man. As God directs Mary and Joseph in their respective roles in bringing God's son into the world, Matthew wants us to see that God is not only fulfilling his promises, but is providing a greater salvation than could have been imagined in those promises. I want you to see that Jesus being the son of Abraham, being the son of David, is God keeping his promises. But in keeping those promises, those great and awesome promises, God was providing a salvation that was greater than anybody could have imagined. As Jesus comes into the world as a divinely fertilized egg and an unborn child, he is promoted as the one who would not simply deliver his people from poverty and hardships, but from their very alienation from God. Jesus is not simply announced as another Joshua who leads his people to national freedom in a certain geographical area. Jesus is announced as a greater Joshua who would lead his people back to a kind of Eden in which God himself dwells among his people. As you read through the Old Testament and you think about the land, even the best days, the golden days of David and King Solomon living in Israel, well, that was a great place to be. That's a longing to go back there. But as you read those days, you realize there's some stuff wrong with this. Because Jesus is not going to overcome the tyranny of foreign powers. Jesus is going to overcome the tyranny of sin. Jesus is not going to simply tear down the walls between us and prosperity. Jesus is going to tear down the walls between us and God. Jesus is not going to lead a people into some... Land flowing with milk and honey. Some place where the economy is awesome. Jesus is going to lead us into the very presence of God. This is a salvation far greater than anything Joshua or any other man could have done. Jesus is a far greater Savior. For God and man to dwell together, sin had to be dealt with. The Pharisees that wanted Jesus to deliver them from Roman oppression wanted a good thing. We want to have our own land back. We want to have our own boundaries back. We want to have our own rules and way of living. That's not a bad thing. But Jesus came to give something better. Roman occupation was certainly unpleasant. But Jesus came to deal with a greater problem. That being sin. Brothers and sisters, it is very common for us to ask for a miniature version of Jesus. Jesus, would you deliver me from my back pain? Would you set me free from how tight the finances are in December? Would you just fix my marriage? Certainly find things to pray for. But Jesus has come to bring a salvation that makes all of that stuff seem silly and puny. And if you fail to see Jesus as one overcoming the great hindrance, the great burden, the great torment of sin, then you fail to see Jesus for who he really is. As we consider what the birth of Jesus Christ means for you and for me, we need the reminder that our greatest troubles, our greatest needs are not the things we often think about most. Your mind is spent so much, so much energy goes on in your mind worrying about things that are too little. We may desperately want financial or health salvation. We may regularly think and pray for relational salvation or the deliverance from boredom and dissatisfaction. Our minds might be constantly craving the salvation of new laws or new lawmakers, On and on, this list might go, but no matter what trial you may be going through, you and I have no need greater than the salvation from our sins. The guilt we've earned by breaking God's law and the good and just response that God owes to rebels like us makes all of our troubles shrink into the background. When Christ comes riding on his horse of judgment with the sword in his hand to judge the nations, we will not be thinking, oh my, I wish I would have cut the grass. (laughs) You have no greater burden than your burden of sin. Your guilt before God Holy and just and righteous is greater than anything else that you may spend your thoughts on. Your burden of sin, you are a guilty sinner before God in your own strength and God owes you judgment. If God is good, he owes you eternal condemnation. You have rebelled against an eternal and good God. God owes you This great and terrible threat of our sinfulness stands ready to damn us all to an eternal hell. But Christmas reminds us that God the Son came to be our Savior. Can Jesus fix your marriage? Absolutely. But can Jesus fix your guilt problem? Yes, and Christ alone Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life that we should have lived, and he died the horrific death that we deserve. He did all of this so that he might redeem a people for himself, a people who didn't deserve it and were more desperate for it than they could ever realize. In Christ, God was keeping his promise to Abraham, his promise to David, and was fulfilling his gracious and eternal plan to save sinners and to dwell with them as their God. Church, it is my prayer that of all the burdens you carry today, you will know that the burden of your sins is greater. And it is my prayer that you will know that Jesus is your Savior. It is my prayer that you, if you are a Christian, will sense a great relief today. My guilt, my debts before a holy God have been dealt with. The rest of it's just little annoyances. It is my prayer that you will see that in the pregnancy of Mary, God was providing the great gift of his own presence. You may not understand it. You may not see it. You may not believe it. But the best gift you could ever dream of would be sour if God wasn't present. And the worst life absent from gifts with God in it is sweeter than any life full of pleasures. For God to provide his own presence is to provide the best thing that God ever could provide. Beloved, God kept his promises and he will keep his promises to us. He came to save and he will surely come again to complete our salvation.